Welcome to the Renew the Arts podcast, where we discuss the role of art and creativity in the church and in the world. We're your hosts, Justice Stout and Michael Minkoff. Our mission at Renew the Arts is to liberate Christian creativity. At renewtheArts.org, you can see what we're working on and see how you can get involved in the creative revival that is currently happening in the church. So, Billy Graham is dead. What now? It's a good question. Billy Graham was considered by many to be the pastor of the American church. Will the American church die with him? There is an exodus of millennials, young people, out of the church, and church leaders and older Christians don't quite seem to know how to reach them. Who's going to carry the gospel to the next generation? Yeah, it's probably not who you think it is. It probably comes from a place you wouldn't expect, because if he were to be found in the usual places, you'd have already found him. Well, we think we know who it is, and we're going to talk about that and what Christians can do to make sure the gospel survives the generational challenge. This is the Renew the Arts podcast, and this is Who Will Replace Billy Graham? So this is a... uh, this is a, an article that I wrote that you can find on uh, renewthearts.org slash blog, maybe? Yep. You can find it. I trust you. <laughs> um, but it is a, uh, yeah, yeah, Billy Graham's passing was, is um, an iconic moment in American Christianity. Uh, there's a reason he was considered America's pastor. I mean, he reached millions and millions of people. The uh, amount of conversions that apparently happened at his crusades were just astronomical numbers. Mm-hmm. I don't even know them. I don't even know numbers that big. That's wow. how big those numbers are. It's impressive. It's impressive. Uh, yeah. Also, um, within the reform community, you have the recent passing of R.C. Sproul, sort mm. of a giant in that world as well. So you have... Yeah evangelical and reformed and just a lot of like bible believing people kind of feeling like who's going to move into the plate who's going to fill these giant shoes and uh, preach to the coming coming generation and there doesn't seem to be an obvious uh candidate candidate even like John Piper retiring mm-hmm. um you know that's not him passing obviously and he's still doing good work but there does seem to just be this isn't this question hasn't only been raised since Billy Graham's passing. This is a bigger question, crystallized by that event, but the bigger question of man, these guys are dying or retiring or um And it does seem sort of like that mode of gospel presentation is also waning and passing away with them because Where's the fire? Yeah. Where's that? Fire that the, Billy the Graham thundering had. from the pulpit kind mm-hmm. of thing, and yeah. I'll be completely honest with you, I uh, kind of like him. Like I definitely liked Billy Graham, and yeah. I what's not to like? Oh, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I guess people can assume. I don't know. There's a reason he pet- was massively popular. <laughs> <laughs> well, there is. I don't know. There have been people all kind of dissing him about. You know, he said some things about Jews, and yeah, uh, he's. And and in like reform circles, it was like, yeah, well, was there discipleship? 
You know what I mean? I don't know. So there's this whole thing about and there can, probably can wasn't. you can you like Billy? Graham? Also, he's ecumenical. So there's this sense of mm. uh, he. Oh my goodness! I forgot about this story until just now. I was sitting in at a coffee shop that I frequent all the time, Harmony House mm. in Dayton. In, in Dayton, <laughs> I live in Dayton, Tennessee. And uh, <laughs> if you ever go there, go to Harmony House, Monkey Town, best coffee you will ever have. And I'm not even joking. It I was actually sitting is. in there and June Griffin. Do you know who June, June, have you ever heard us talking about June Griffin? No. Well, she came in and was, you know, John Pyatt, the proprietor of the coffee shop, brought up Billy Graham, and she just lit into Billy Graham's career, like how that man's, she lit, this is like verbatim, that man's made more deals with the Pope than any other man, like more, you know, sly, I don't know, mm-hmm. whatever with the Pope. And uh, and he just believes that anybody's going to go to heaven because he's ecumenical. And, mm-hmm. it, you know, he's made some pretty soft statements about other religions and, or, you know, Jews and stuff like that. So Oh, okay. So so either you hate him for saying things against the Jews or you hate him for saying things, things for, the, for the, Jews. the Jews. Okay. Yeah. I see how it is. He shouldn't have, he shouldn't have done that. <laughs> Seems sort of like a damned if you do, damned if you don't situation. Yeah. yeah. Anyway. Maybe just don't talk about Jews. Like, I guess I'm just saying there are plenty of people, apparently, who don't, I don't know. But I really, I really like a lot of Billy Graham's work. And I remember Jesse Murray, uh, one of my best friends. Um, we were we collect vinyl records, and uh, he found some Billy Graham Crusade vinyls and put them on. And it was, it spoke to us. It really mm. did. Uh, it was it was really it was really good. I remember uh, Jesse had this moment in his life. Like uh, I wish he were here to tell it, but he had this um, period where it lasted for a couple days, but um, someone brought up Christian pastors being involved in scandal. And he, like, looked them up. He was like, Googled it, Christian pastors in scandals. And it's a long list. It is a long and notable list. Like, mm-hmm. this isn't a bunch of, you know, small time. Mm-mm. There's plenty of that. But, th- like, prominent pastors completely scandalized by something that they had done mm-hmm. um and jesse like went through a few days of just being depressed over it and kind of right you know in some senses it, it's, it's very it's terrible it's depressing mm-hmm. um and i remember like at the end of it he was like but there's billy Gra- there's billy graham there's billy graham who like it. held out for a hundred years however long that man lived for. <laughs> no, seriously, That's he was in his late 90s. I know, I just don't think he probably was being tempted to sexual scandal he when he was two, three, four, five years old. So. I'm just saying, there's a hundred <clears throat> years without major scandal Okay, of I, this man's, you know you what I mean? You are right. That is incredible. But you have a lot of other people who think that the so-called Billy Graham rule has not really been the most helpful <laughs> thing yeah. Um, especially in terms of sort of treating women like seductresses or whatever. Like You have two daughters. What do you think about that? About the Billy Graham rule? Mm-hmm. Or the uh, Mike Pence rule, as it's more oh, popularly as it's now, currently now. known? Yeah. Well, I'd rather call it the Billy Graham rule. Okay, that's fine. Um, I think that I'm going to have to teach my daughters to be extremely careful, uh, uh-huh. more so than I'm going to have to... Ch- teach my sons to be ex- extremely careful what i need to teach my sons is to be extremely considerate mm-hmm. um, and if i can teach them to be considerate and righteous then i hope that they won't need as many of those external rules but if they need those external rules in order to be righteous i i mean i'm all for those mm-hmm. 
But I don't think that, I think true righteousness is free righteousness. Yeah. And so I want to teach my sons where, you know, you don't need to have internet filters or blocks or whatever on your phone or your computer because you don't want to look at those things. Mm -hmm. That's actually the only way you can gain freedom and actually be truly righteous. I'm going to push back on that. Okay, no, wait, just Uh, hold on. If I see that they don't have the maturity to yeah. ride without the training wheels and they keep right. falling off the bike and hurting themselves, right. then I'll put the training wheels on. Yeah. I have no problem with the training wheels. Well, I have it's self-imposed just... training wheels. I have I have okay. a filter on my phone. And I... like it's an accountability software with my wife. And so there's it's another self imposed imposed step toward, you know. And I agree. And I think some some men, some women I think need those things, mm-hmm. and because of that, the Billy Graham rule can be selectively very, very helpful for certain, especially men who 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 enjoy the security of rules. Yeah, um, I don't. Mm-hmm. I don't. In fact, the rules to me uh, invite and incite uh, more rebellion. curiosity and rebellion. I don't have a filter on my phone. I also don't look at porn, mm-hmm. um, and that ultimately that just is because I don't want to. And that's what I'm trying to cultivate in my heart, not wanting to. When I start to feel myself drifting away from the Lord, I start mm-hmm. to feel myself drifting into curiosity and uh, into lust, I I have to refocus my heart, you know? And, mm-hmm. and that's really more my path. Some people don't have that same path. I'm okay with that. Right. That's why I think the universality of such rules... Of like a Mike Pence rule or yeah, a telegram rule. ...is not so helpful. Also, I well... Okay. And, and on, on a side note, I think the Mike Pence rule is actually different than the Billy Graham rule because Mike Pence is a politician. Now, yeah. in some senses, both of these guys, people would love to see them fall. Yeah. Especially a politician, it makes the, a world of sense to constantly have some crowd of witnesses. Yeah, just to avoid the accusation. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, even if there's even if you're not actually following Especially the in a sin. cultural context where accusations are enough. Yeah. Um, right to to do serious damage, damage. and right. if you're a politician and you got to get reelected and you got it it makes a lot of sense it is it would be foolish mm-hmm. to to not take at least measures like these anyway, i agree that's okay. all so the question though that i have during uh-huh. this entire conversation so far given the fact that this is the renew the arts podcast is what <laughs> does this have to do with what the does this arts? have to do with anything I, i'm okay with this conversation it's great but what why why are we talking about this right now and uh we actually have michael's being serious he doesn't even know the answer to this i haven't posted the the blog yet here and uh and he doesn't know where i'm going with this um i am completely convinced that the people who are going to be carrying the gospel conduits of the gospel for the millennial generation and younger are going, it's going, it's not going to be one person. Sorry to let you down there if you were hoping, I know. I was hoping for a big reveal. I know, I know. But um, there's a reason it's not one person, like a real reason, and we're going to get to that soon. But it is a host of Christian creatives that are able to articulate their faith. I hate creative as a noun. It's so terrible. Can you let me have my moment? (laughs) I'm going to start back at the beginning of that, Okay. No, no, no. I'm going to do it. No, do not do that. People want to know, and I'm going to give them a concise <laughs> sentence. Okay? Here it is. The primary conduits of the gospel in the future will be a host of creative Christians. That's better. That better. Who can articulate the good news in channels that are already wielding the vast majority of influence today. Specifically, film, music, art, and culture. 
Okay, you're gonna have to break all of that down. Okay, so the average American adult consumes about ten and a half hours of media content per day, and that's an adult. Okay, that's well, what's media content. It includes a lot of stuff, but okay. um, in that is five and a half hours of video on average for an American. Five and a half hours of video content on an average for per day for an American adult. An average. I, yes. Yes. That is insane, dude. I will link the uh, studies that show that in the podcast. Rusty, make sure that happens. I mean, okay. <laughs> but seriously, that's a true... And <clears throat> think about it. Look at your, you know, your smartphone. Yeah, yeah, no, 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 you're People right. People are on... All, I can't even yeah. pump gas without watching a video. Okay? You? Even, well, no, I'm saying... Et tu, Brute? Well, no, I, no, I'm saying oh, the, oh, oh, the, the, the console the, thing. The, the video pops the up and she starts talking to me and I can't do, do anything about your it. Do cleaner? And, that, and yeah. that counts in that kind of statistic. Okay. It doesn't mean you watch five and a half hours of like movies when you get home. Okay. But it does mean if you're scrolling through Facebook and you watch a video or, mm. you know, any, basically, okay. I, I think. All right. All right. I'm on so, board. Okay. I, it still seems astronomical, but I will. The average American and I'll we'll we'll link to it. Um but and and if that's an adult think about what that means for teenagers who no. really do have more no. time on their hands or just young adults and, or college and students. And they are glued their faces are basically glued to their phones. Anyway, so I mean yeah. Okay. Yeah. Definitely. I would believe that for teenagers, but I guess there might be uh they might be skewing the average for the rest of us. <laughs> for the Well, well the, the 10 and a half is just adults. That's what I'm saying. Oh my goodness. That's 10 and a half for adults. That doesn't include teenagers. Five, you said five and a half. It's not ten. Five and a half hours of video. Oh, okay. Ten and a half of media content okay. in general. That includes text. All right. That includes music. And, and that can be compounded, right? You can mm. be listening to music and looking at a text that's like... Okay, so it doesn't up. have to add up to 24 right. or whatever. Right. It's like you're watching more... You're consuming more media than there are hours in the day. I know. No, you actually... Yeah. I, I think it'll... It might actually work. What's really point. interesting is that that was an, the video one was an hour increase from the previous year. Year, wow. From 2015 to 2016, it went from on average four and a half hours to five and a half hours. So like That's this curve crazy. is... Okay. Well, All right, continue. Anyway, the point is the platforms mm -hmm. for information, for um, development, for um, uh, just hours of the day, the, the platforms that you receive information and that you develop as a person and that you build your value systems around, they have completely changed. They have completely changed. Like literally, if Billy Graham were born today or were born, you know, 15, 20 years ago, um, he, you know, what's he going to do? Press vinyl? And even even his... Um, he might. I mean, it's making a comeback. It is making a comeback. Not that I don't know if uh... he could probably do exactly <laughs> what he did and just sell it as a retro package, and everybody be like, "Yeah, man." I enjoy seen, this. Ironically, have you seen vintage Billy Graham? Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but he would he would be either nobody, mm -hmm. or he would be on the channels that are reaching those thousands of people. That's part of the part of the question of who will replace Billy Graham. It's not who will replace pastors. Mm -hmm. Right, because these people who saw Billy Graham hopefully got integrated into churches throughout the country. So it's a really interesting question, actually. It's not who will replace pastors in general. It's who will bring a popular, reviving, powerful, um, culture-penetrating message of the gospel. 
And um, so it's, you know, I am fully convinced it's creative Christians who are going to be engaging in the channels those 10 and a half hours. Mm -hmm. They're going to be engaging in that, making content for that, and shaping and encouraging the truth in those channels. I have um, a couple of questions. Okay. And I hope that I'm not derailing your, your thing or whatever, but I do have a couple of questions at this I point. can't answer questions. Uh, <clears throat> okay, well, that's unfortunate. <laughs> uh, the first is, why do you think there is a shift from individuals, like the big names, okay. to like a larger group, like a more collective or more community or Why is it a one person? Why yeah. is it a host? Okay. Exactly. There's, that's one uh -huh. question. And, uh, and then the second question is, are we supposed to be just submitting ourselves to the ways that people are now consuming media? Or should we actually be trying? Because what I'm seeing at seminary is they're not on board. Mm -hmm. Like, I, I think I have 600 pages of reading to do, mm -hmm. you know, and in, a, in a culture where even for my generation, reading a lot is considered extremely laborious. Yeah. Right. But but the seminary I go to is like, rah, rah, re kick watching movies in the knee you know like they're they're like they they're all about the printed text and uh -huh. they think it's actually important that a highly literate society is going to make for a more christian society like in their yeah. mind those things go hand in hand okay. so should we be fighting against just the, the whims of, of a yeah, culture that's yeah, just derailing into, into these <laughs> embrace the de degeneration right. no that's not what i'm saying so, okay so answer those two questions so the first one first one's first okay uh why is it a host I think it's because, um, and this is practical. This is a practical reason, um, but millennials, on average, and us being younger, it's very easily seen. I think most people our age would very easily see it, but it might be news to some people. We're anti-establishment. We're anti-authority. Um, that's we're anti anti-institution, even. Yes, and so if you have, um, that's one of the reasons why corporations seem, you know, there's. Mm, Millennials don't evil, evil corporation. What evil good? Core. Good. I was talking to a friend, and uh, he works at this rather large company. And he said, "Yeah, I bumped into the the president, you know, because he just has some role mm -hmm. or whatever." And he's like, "Yeah, he seemed like a nice guy, but like, you know, you don't become president of a company <laughs> without he's doing still some a really... shill for the industrial. He's military probably complex. a terrible <laughs> person, and it's like, okay, yeah. <laughs> all right, maybe. I mean, some, but that's just some view. really good." But it's a it's a view that a lot of millennials happen to have. They also distrust, even though they're enamored with it. I think that a lot of millennials distrust celebrity. They're fascinated with it. They're obsessed with celebrity. Well, we've had so many letdowns. Yeah, so many scandals, especially Christians. Right. Um, but yeah, it's so easily to be it's so easy to be, to be scandalized today too because information travels so rapidly. They also don't so like to be. They're very sensitive to being coerced as well. Mm -hmm. So there's a very voluntary. Spirit. That's why authenticity is such a like number one right. thing. Like I even, don't, if I feel even a hint, like you're trying to sell me something, like I check. Or out. Are you putting yourself on to be more than you are? That's why like Domino's had the ads. whole like, we know our pizzas were terrible. That's why we demolished our stores, and now we're doing a completely new recipe. It's like we're being honest about who we are, and we're mm -hmm. trying. You know what I mean? It's yeah. like. You, yeah. That would never fly uh -uh. 10 years ago, No, they'd be like, so what ago. you're saying is you're a failure as a business. I'm not going there, but it's like, <laughs> yeah. oh, you're on, oh, well, you're so honest. you're being, okay, that sounds kind of legit. Cool. I might try some, I might see what you're doing I will now. receive your repentance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
<laughs> seems kind of authentic. Yeah. At least they knew. Yeah, yeah. And because it was terrible. <laughs> right. Well, and their advertisers, that's what's so terrible about it, though, is like at a certain point, authenticity becomes co-opted for non-authentic It was ends. Domino's, yeah. after all. Right, yeah, that's And they're selling pizzas, yeah. Yeah, so they are yeah. still trying to sell something. But, but the, and, yeah, and we can go down that rabbit trail, but yeah. the main point being authenticity and is, is very... Uh, the Barna group did a study on, like, millennials, and, and this was definitely a big point, is that they're anti-authority, anti-facade, um, you know, authenticity... Anti-coercion. One, one, one of the reasons it's so valuable is because it's a diminishing quality because you have Instagram and Facebook. Social media makes it so easy to post the best version of yourself that all of a sudden pretty people are, you know, these, you know, having this whole thing together. Well, that's easy. Mm -hmm. It's actually harder to be honest and real. Mm -hmm. And so there's kind of this weird reversal where it's yeah. like, oh, I'm going to purposefully, you know, oh, I'm going to uh, no makeup selfie. Uh -huh. And that's like a thing. Hashtag. Hashtag. Yeah. Just so you know, I'm I not wearing, wearing makeup. No filter photo. And there's no judgment here. We're just yeah. talking about movements. No, there's it's judgment. very Lots interesting. Judgment. So Feel the judgment. judgment. <laughs> so much judgment. So that's why I think um, th that's not a particularly good thing. That's not a particularly bad thing necessarily. There's a, thing. a lot of good things that come from anti-establishment, you know, anti-authoritarianism. Hopefully people will uh, be anti-authoritarian when it comes to government and vote for non- candidates. Well, I'm not going to go, I'm not okay. going to go part. Just vote for Just listen, I'm not going <laughs> to. But the point is hopefully, you know, there are good, healthy things about being suspicious of I agree. All authorities. And there's are, also are there's also troublesome parts to it as well because there is a lack of submission to proper authorities in their proper place. For and sure. that can be troublesome. And that and it has proven to be a problem. One of the problems with millennials is that um, there's this thing that's happening where they're leaving church but they're not leaving Christianity. Mm -hmm. So you know, the the church and church leaders feel it really uh, tangibly, because they see it happening. All of these young people aren't, they're leaving church. And uh, I think early on, the assumption was like, we're lo losing them to like non-Christianity. But that's not really what's happening. Um, they're l losing them to a non-churched Christian, which um, I don't think that you could say that's not a Christian, but it um, they're out of the doors of the church and it's very concerning for church leaders, and it's probably not the healthiest model. No, and it, it, and you see, you see. Part of it is this attitude within younger Christians of, like we said. I mean, we just had this little debate earlier mm -hmm. about whether or not external rules were helpful. You're saying yes. I'm saying not so much for me. Mm -hmm. I would say that a lot of millennials are probably more on They're my side be on your team, yeah. than, than yours. But mm -hmm. the problem is they aren't actually accomplishing the fruits of that righteousness in many ways. A lot of times Because not. They, they're yeah. not being ministered to. They don't have accountability. I have a great uh, relationship with my wife and with my friends, and they see me, and, mm -hmm. I, and, and they know when things are not going very well with me. But if you're... If you're just if your life is basically virtual on Facebook or social media and you're living mostly by yourself and you're disconnected from your family and friends in a real like one-on-one -on -one way. I mean, I live in a basically in a commune, you know, with my yeah. so I mean, there are four different families 
that are floating around in and out of there with tons of kids and nobody hides anything from you. You can't. Right. Ultimately, you know, you're arguing with your wife, everybody in the house knows, and they're all going to talk to you about it. Right. And so for me, that's been really healthy and really helpful because of the fact that I don't have all of these external rules. But if mm-hmm. I were living by myself mm-hmm. or without a, that kind of accountability structure... Which is, which is my case. Annika and I live in a cave in Dayton, Tennessee, and that's why... Right. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I have no friends. I have, um, yeah, I have no, no, no church. No. You so do. No, I no, but that, part no. of it is personality differences as well. Yeah. I, I understand that. But I am saying that for a lot of millennials, you you are seeing a degradation of of the moral quality where they're drifting from the the execution in their personal lives of yeah. certain moral things. Yeah. Um, a degeneration of the quality of their morality. I think in some time. in some senses, it's a it's a backlash against legalism too. This yeah. idea of like, yeah, hey, the Bible doesn't actually say you can't drink. That's true. So I'll get drunk all the time. Right. It's like, oh, yeah, it's not exactly. Not quite. Yeah. Don't so, do that. And it is. It's it's hard to find the middle path. Mm-hmm. It is. It really is very hard to find. And what I would say, not really the middle path, but the righteous path. Right. To be righteous with without those external disciplines. Is, is very, very difficult, I would say, for most everybody. It's difficult for me. It's difficult for most people. I think that is ultimately the goal. Mm-hmm. I think that Jesus ultimately wants all of us to be righteous without coercion. But well, yeah. when you're kids, though, there and is we going are to kids, be some coercion. There's got to have to be some coercion. We're mature. We're, we are immature. And part of it is, as millennials and as young people, I think we need to develop the humility to recognize that a lot of those training wheels of moral, like, everything, you know... Sometimes helpful. Sometimes really helpful. And yeah. oftentimes, just flatly necessary, yeah. because you're just not very good. Like the accountability you know? of the body of the church. Yeah. And in, in being... And to uh, a pastor, submitting yeah. yourself to a pastor, making these kinds of, of, of commitments uh, to, to be open to and to receive the criticism and, and the discipline of people who are in authority over you. Not yeah. comfortable, not great. Very helpful. Very good. And when it's necessary, really unfortunate if it doesn't exist. Yeah. Right? So all that to say, yeah. millennials are anti-authority. Uh, mm-hmm. And because of that, I think uh, someone like, you know, having a one central figure is is going to be a little less likely than it was in the and in it's like also, the 50s. It was always dangerous. I mean, even it with Jesse. It is always it's dangerous. It's always dangerous. Yeah. It's better that the church as a community be... I, I think working as an organism, th- that's always going to be healthier. That's always going to be better. When you have one man, though I do understand God does choose men sometimes to do really important things, yeah. I, I feel bad for those men. It's a be- difficult place it, to be. It's a and really when you have one like Billy Graham, yeah. who actually like lives his life without major scandal, it's, it's an incredible rare. thing to see. Very rare. So, but I just mean statistically, socially, the likelihood of that for millennials is very low. So you have so 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 community. <clears throat> we're just moving toward community. We're moving toward community and voluntary and, community and locality, like okay. a lo- like local leadership. Okay. Um, the second thing uh, is that Are the you channels. My second question. Oh uh, no. Okay, so I'm, just kidding. Answer- I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. What's what was your second question? What are you talking about? I forgot anyway, it. Okay, so if if should we just submit ourselves to the degeneration oh, of culture of illiteracy? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which has occurred because of like people's oral and visual fixations. Mm-hmm. Should we just like go ahead and be like, all right, well, you know, we'll just go along with that. 
That is a more difficult question. I think that it's not going to be all one way or, or all the other. Um, I think throughout the course of you know human history, you have changing changings of platforms, mm. and um, I'm sure that there were people when the printing press came out that just you know what there's something about that scroll. Mm-hmm. There's something about the the way you open it up, the reverence that you just don't get in a bound mass printed Codex. book. And uh and then after that, you know, you have uh there I don't know. They're just there are there human communication undergoes changes. And um and also not all not all societies are are were uh written, you know, a, a lot of societies and for the bulk of human history like orally based transference of knowledge like right. you talk and you you pass on information by talking um humans didn't always most of them know how to read and write um but a lot of people would say that's a bad thing but wait it was sort of a trick question it was a little bit of a trick question okay because i think one of the things implicit in a question like that is that oral and visual communications are in some ways inferior okay which they're not. Yeah. Like, I guess why that, would they that be was kind of the point I was trying <laughs> right, to make right. about the fact that oral tradition has been alive for a really yeah. long time and has no, no. done quite well for... For a lot of people. In yeah. fact, if you look at, like, Technopoly uh, by Postman, Neil Postman. Yeah. So he, he in this book, he writes about the exchanges that we have made uh, because of books. Mm-hmm. He says, you don't really think about books as a technology, but when you start... Putting information in books, it affects the memories of mm. people. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I don't even think it was that long ago when books started to become a thing. The medieval scholars, when they would read a book, because they didn't know whether or not they'd have access to this book in the future, they certainly couldn't just get on the computer and look that information up again. Uh-huh. They read in much different way than we do. They always read out loud, and they always read to memorize. Mm. So when medieval scholars went into uh, debate, you know, like when you read Martin Luther's writing or, mm-hmm. or John Calvin's writing or any of these guys who were trained in this way, mm-hmm. it's they, they don't, you know, they don't have concordances. You're looking at all these Bible references and all of this, these quotations and everything, and they're, they're all very accurate quotations most of the time. Uh, with a slight discrepancies, but still, that's straight out of their memory. Yeah, like they have memorized all of this stuff, and they and when they went into dispute or argue uh, in the medieval universities, they didn't bring any text with them at all. Mm-hmm. They had to give their entire argument with quotations, entirely from their brains. Yeah, which which changes the way they organized their their argument. It had to be more memorable. I mean, if you look at Homer, uh, the Odyssey, or the Iliad. Uh, it's the same deal. Th- those were generally those were orally given orally, given. and they were crafted by their oral delivery so that they were easier to remember. Right. That's why you have. Um, that's why rhyming was such a, an a essential yeah. aspect of early literature. Is because right. oh, what's the next line? Oh, oh, well, it's oh yeah, it's got to rhyme with that. It. So yeah. yeah. And so then you have the Bible, which most of the Bible is given what was preserved orally, and even the things about it that we don't necessarily think are oral were preserved orally. For instance, mm-hmm. the Old Testament, um, it didn't get vowel markings yeah. until, like, I don't know, 700s or something, 5, 800s, AD. Okay? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so, like, we're talking real late. 
how were the how was it passed on how they were supposed to read those texts? Well, scribes knew how to read them, mm-hmm. would read them out loud and teach other scribes how to read them, and that information was passed on orally. So oral tradition is just as legitimate. Not only is it just as legitimate, it has mm. advantages right. in many ways. Like stories are more memorable. The, right. You know, like that kind of thing. Um, and it also it organizes information a certain way. That's a really important point. And, I, and that's what I was, I was actually going to get to as oh, far as like sorry. music. No, 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 you're fine. But as far as music and film, these are great examples. I mean, music, uh, a lot of times whenever I'm trying to recall some sort of aspect of my faith, um, a song will pop into my head, like a song that maybe my mother sang to me or a song that you know I committed to memory in church or something like that. Um, obviously, uh, scripture memorization is really important, um, but there is a way that music can in can occupy your mind space uh that other modes of information uh don't really occupy same thing for story yeah same thing for you know and and film would be included in that story and visual you know story mixed with visual so um we you know if if we you know when we lose billy graham and this the art of um, oration, basically. I mean, he was an orator. He's a great. He's, he orator. was a wonderful orator. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are also wonderful storytellers. There are wonderful songwriters. You have these kinds of modes of the truth found throughout Scripture. Um, we talk about that all the time. But it's a really imp- important point. Like the Bible is not just a Billy Graham speech. No. And uh, and when we lose someone like Billy Graham, we can't. We sh- and a Billy Graham doesn't replace Billy Graham, mm-hmm. but rather the the notion of artists replacing Billy Graham. I think, see, you know, whenever you say that, a lot of people are going to start shifting. And if, you know, in some sense, I understand, but uh, singers and songwriters already profoundly shape our heart and mind. And if this isn't the case for you personally, I'd like you to consider the young people in your life. If you're older than 45, and this sounds like, a washed-up last resort for the church, uh, you got to think again. And there are three main points that I have with this, and I think some of it will touch on the question you have, but this is where I kind of flesh this theory out. Um, First of all, it's biblically mandated. Second of all, it's historically practiced by the church. And thirdly, it's more needed now than ever, and that's kind of why it's going to happen now. But um, You're saying... What is more, it is more... Sorry, sorry, yeah. Um, <laughs> if, I well, I was addressing people 45 and older, and if if saying that, Christ, that artists are going to be the primary conduits of the gospel, if saying that this feels a little washed up, yeah. like, oh, I'm, we're not going to replace Billy Graham with artists, great, what's that going to... If yeah. that's what you feel like, consider these three things. Okay. That the art being proclaimed through creatives is number one, biblically mandated, number two, historically practiced by the church, and number three, more needed now than ever. Okay, so are you going to unpack those three things? Sure. I mean, I can. I mean, Uh, I guess we could unpack them together. Or I could just, like, ask you more questions since I haven't looked at your outline and, like, steal your thunder and derail the conversation. No, 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 I'll dive dive forward. The the first thing about art, you know, preaching the gospel through art being biblically mandated— and I think we've talked about this on one of the pre- previous, on the well, I guess the, the first podcast, but um, it's, it's, it bears repeating. Yeah, when you look at the Bible, there are artists throughout Scripture that God chose to be 
the mouthpiece for truth in their day. Mm-hmm. And um, it certainly can include transformative gospel presenting mm-hmm. art forms. Uh, a proof text that I like to go to is um, when David says, quote, He put a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in him. Yeah. So David's playing a song. Mm. People see, they fear converted. the Lord, and they put their trust in the Lord. You also have the, the verse which the Anabaptists interpreted to mean that you shouldn't have songs in worship somehow. I have no idea how they did that. But um, the uh, teaching and admonishing one another with hymn psalms and spiritual songs, mm-hmm. um, they thought what that meant is you don't teach and admonish in singing. You teach and admonish by talking. And so you can speak you can speak the psalms or the songs in the worship service, but you're not allowed to sing them. Anyway, I think that's totally wrong. I think what, that's, they were on the right. <laughs> they were on the right track. Yeah. <laughs> but but what they didn't understand is that to sing those psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs to one another is teaching and admonishing. Exactly. That's what's so interesting about right. that is yeah. that uh, this is a way of building up the church with the truth. Yeah. Um, and it's it's a it's not just a peculiarly effective. I think what some people have an issue with this is that they think that we are kowtowing to or bending to cultural needs. And it's, it's, it's sort of become, especially in our in evangelical circles, mm-hmm. a sign of weakness to serve a context or a culture where it is. Uh-huh. Where it's like, no, what you're supposed to be doing is, is pushing the antithesis challenging, confronting, you know, these are the things, bold, Mm -hmm. bold confrontation. Mm -hmm. Um, And while I do understand what they're saying, it's interesting that in the scriptures, the boldest confrontations were always reserved for the churched people, Mm -hmm. because they should have been able to handle it. And the gentlest and most compassionate and most servant-oriented, bended-knee, humble approaches were always for the unbeliever who didn't know better. Mm-hmm. And it's very interesting that unbelievers, when served in that way, came to belief and faith, mm-hmm. but that churches, when they received the same kind of bold declarations that they were telling their prophets to give to the unbelievers, rejected their prophets. Yeah. So, I, you know... There's... I, yeah. Yeah. And it's not cow. What's that word? Cow towing. Cow towing. Yes. Yeah, that, uh, that's when you go into the presence of the Chinese emperor. You have to cow tow, which is oh, yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah, it's like bowing your head to the floor, and like you have to tap it like three times or something, and then you are allowed to approach a little closer. No, let's and not then, do that for culture. Yeah, let's not. Let's, let's not do that for culture. But uh, so there's a difference between that and taking cues to knowing what in the parameters of things that are good and effective. Yeah. What's actually going to be appropriate for a particular time, the Sons right. of Thunder. I mean, they knew yeah. their, they knew the times. So you have two basic issues there. You, you, you have on one side contextualization, proper contextualization, meaning you're taking the truth and you're trying to bring it into the context. But on the other side, what they would say is you have to avoid syncretism, which is mixing the truths of what you're trying to present with the falsehoods of the culture right. you're trying to present. And it that's to. why... I, I was really specific in saying that uh, it, the, the conduits of the gospel, I think, are going to be Christian creatives that can articulate the truth of the gospel through... Through the arts. Through the arts. Yes, not, not, not 
dilute or destroy, you know. Because that's just what's going to make us popular. That's right. actually part of the problem with a lot of Christian art is that it is diluted. Right. Um, Even the most explicitly Christian stuff right. is so abstract and so generalized that mm-hmm. it can apply to almost anything. And that's not what we're, that's not what exactly, we're talking no, that's not exactly talking about. But anyway, so I think that there's a... Uh, yeah, a biblical mandate for preaching the gospel through the in arts. In that way. Yeah, and okay. just speaking truth to a culture through the arts. I'm not saying that every piece of art, and if you listen to the podcast beyond this one episode, yeah. you'll, you'll realize um, more of this, but uh, it doesn't mean, yeah, having an altar call in every film or having mm-hmm. some sort of really in narrow... Fact, it, it actually specifically means not that, mm-hmm. <laughs> if you're going to be biblical. Even Jesus, when he came spoke almost exclusively in parables. Mm-hmm. And, and it, you know, it says, uh, I have the quote here, um, he spoke all these things to the crowd in parables. He did not say anything to them without using a parable, which is so fascinating. But Jesus' ministry himself, God himself, whenever he came down and was preaching the gospel, he spoke in short form, stories. fictional stories. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and they uh, were very effective. They were incredibly and memorable, effective. memorable. And I guarantee you that most people right now, if you were to ask them, tell me the story of the prodigal son, they would be able to tell you pretty accurately. Yeah. But if you were to say, okay, tell me the outline of Romans. Yeah. They would not be able to tell you. Even though the outline of Romans is about as simple mm-hmm. as the prodigal son story. And again, this is this is an interesting thing to... to, to to, to clarify to, an, to our audience, I'm not saying that creatives, artists, are going to take the place of the preaching of the gospel or local pastors. But if you're asking who's going to replace Billy Graham, who's going to reach that's the a different question. You're yeah. going to ask who is going to have widespread magnetic influence on the culture. It's not going to be someone who looks or preaches like Billy Graham. It's not. It's going to be someone who is, uh, I'm fully convinced it's going to be people like a whole collection of artists, Christian artists who are dedicated to their craft, dedicated to their faith, who can articulate our faith in film and music and art uh, that is going to have huge, huge influence and huge effect on our culture because that is... Is where that that is what our culture is begging for right now. That's how we already learn. Like as a generation, mm-hmm. uh, we're not we're not going to drive out to a huge um, crusade. We're not going to call it a crusade. You know what I mean? Right. We're not gonna we're not going to attend these crusades. You know, right. it's just not something millennials in general prefer to stay in. We want Netflix, not Blockbuster. Like, there are all kinds of little details that would mm-hmm. make Billy Graham's ministry not viable today. Um, and they're not all necessarily bad. It's just that it's a different time, and it calls for different platforms. You know, before Billy Graham, there was the, the circuit preachers on horses. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? If Billy Graham was born in that day, he probably wouldn't have been famous. He probably... I don't know how good of a horseback rider he was or, or if that was, you know, these kind, this mode of spreading the gospel was for him. But well, have like George the platforms. Whitfield. I mean, Billy Graham probably could have been a George Whitfield as long as he, uh, as long as he was able to preach loud enough without amplification. Right. Right. But there's just a lot of details socially oh, and Tons. culturally that actually, yeah. 
effect. make something, yeah, yeah. non moral issues that make a certain conduit and a certain platform viable. Yeah. So you're like, okay, Billy Graham, awesome. You know, we have radio. Radio mm-hmm. is very popular. Right. T- television. Everybody's tuning into the same mm-hmm. three channels. Right. You know what I mean? Like, not so much right not now. Not so much anymore. What are people tuning into? Are they, you know, that's the question. Mm-hmm. Where are people going to listen and where will people go to hear? YouTube, Facebook, social media. I mean, that's, that's, I mean, I mean social media is a huge one. Um, but I would say that uh, up there at the top of the list is um, well executed art and entertainment that speaks to their heart and resonates with with what they believe is good and true. And uh and once the church is able to make this transition and start supporting Christian artists in this way, uh yeah, I think that you're going to see a huge amount of of um return on people who are drawn to what they see in these films and in these songs and and want to learn more. But that seems to be a real problem though. What do you mean? Well, that seems to be one of the major problems uh, with right now, um, because, you know, uh, all right, let's say that a community of Christian artists are going to be the influencers of culture that make the, you know, that reach the lost in the coming generation. Mm-hmm. I mean, where are those people and how do we make that happen? You know what I mean? Let's get to that in just a minute. <laughs> let's okay. go. I know. And seriously, take take note of it. Um, the second thing is that historically, uh, this isn't a new thing. The church historically has been known to make excellent art that preached the truth. And, uh, so it's, it's not, it's not a terribly fresh idea necessarily. Well, the church in what sense? In the sense of God's people in history. So like Christians that were supported by the church, like, are or... I'm saying that, um... Historically speaking, the church has made some of the best works of art known to man. And that more often, you know, that the truth was declared and incredibly enough still is declared to this point through these amazing works of of art, Mm -hmm. whether it be music or architecture or visual art. And um, so to say something like, oh, I think that the gospel is going to be preached through uh, Christian artists even supported by the church or, or not supported by the church, there's a long history yeah. of the truth being preached through the arts in the Christian church. So, and being supported by the church. And, and all, including being supported by the church. Yeah. Um, so number one, it's biblically mandated. Number two, it's historically practiced by the church. And then number three, it's more important now than ever. So basically, um, sometimes the church has been more engaged in art making than others, but right now, if you're wondering, hmm, I wonder what's important for the church to be able to adapt to in the coming mm-hmm. generations. It's massive. That curve that we're talking about, that 10 and a half hours of media content, that mm-hmm. five and a half hours of video content, like, where do we preach? At the city gate, in the marketplace, in, mm-hmm. the, squ- in the city square. We don't have city squares anymore. We live in suburbia or whatever. Uh, if you want to preach in the city gate today, that is going to be on these creative platforms that people are consuming 10 and a half hours of. It just is. Mm-hmm. There's no way around it. There's no way around it. And it's not going to be one person like Billy Graham. It's going to be a host of Christians who are dedicated to craft and dedicated to their faith that are going to be 
that will uh, be enabled at some point soon to um, have a seat at the table, to have a huge impact and influence on culture once we start investing in cultural creation from the mindset of Christianity. So, I mean, what you're saying, though, is that if we don't support, if the church does not support, because mm-hmm. right now the church doesn't. Not very well. Not very and not well. for the most part. Yeah. Not for the most part. It, it, it really doesn't support. It's, it's excellent artists. It's craft-oriented artists. It's visionary artists. Mm-hmm. Um, so if we don't, then do you think that I mean, what is the trend? What what happens? What happens? Does Billy Graham, Billy Graham, basically, what you're saying is Billy Graham, R.C. Sproul, these other guys, they kind of can't be replaced because there isn't a market for what they're doing in the coming generations. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. Okay. And so what you're saying is if the church, if the church is going to minister to and evangelize this coming generation, it's going to have to do these things. What happens if it doesn't? What happens if the church just says, I don't care, I'm not going to do it? I'm fully confident that the church will survive. Yeah. Obviously. Right. Like God's bride, you know, Christ is going to be victorious and the church will be fine. Um, So it's just a matter of wasted time. Mm -hmm. I think that, um, because, and and for the same reasons, because it is biblically mandated and, and historically practiced, I am confident that this is kind of a strange time. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not it's not strange to to suggest that artists should be engaged in making awesome cultural content. It's very strange that we should have to say that <laughs> in the grand scheme of things. Yeah. And and so I'm sure that the church is going to again have a solid engagement and care for culture. We're going to make films that are going it will captivate the again. hearts of people who aren't and paintings who are and Christian. music and all yes, the rest all, of it. Everything. Uh, so it's not a matter of uh, how though? I know that I, I'm sure the church will will get there. You know what I mean? Like we're not going to go thousands of years in the future uh, without I hope doing not. something like I, this. I, I, I bet. I, the question yeah. of how is a great question. Yeah. Um, and uh, like, I think like you got to collect them. You got to collect these artists. You got to mobilize all, them. First of all, start start recognizing them. creative Christians as as important in your Christian communities. I can I can't I couldn't even get through stories of p- artists in the church who just consistently feel like they don't have a place in these communities that they're misunderstood and it's not like they're being some crazy artist. Uh just this idea of like why would you paint? Mm-hmm. What's valuable about that for the church? Or if it is like oh you play guitar, you can lead worship maybe but like we're going to tell you what songs to play. <laughs> yeah. We're going to tell you what to play and uh, and you can play for worship but like beyond that what's the point? Mm-hmm. Or what's the value for the church? Mm-hmm. So recognizing that having a creative person in your church or even better like a trained artist of some craft like a filmmaker mm-hmm. or a musician or a painter having them in your church community is incredibly valuable for your own community to be um, spoken to through their work, and also for the world to hopefully, maybe the church would be interested in supporting them to make a piece that could preach to the world. Okay, but this is still local, very local-oriented, very find these people within your midst that have skill and gifting. Yeah. May I speak for a second, though, why I think that's not being done already? Sure, yeah, go for it. Okay, so... <clears throat> 
during my missions class, during my missions class, we have the, the missions professor goes up there and he starts talking about how he's going to train us how to how to learn a story chain, how to how to organize stories from the Bible in such a way that they are peculiarly suited, like those peculiar stories, those particular stories from the Bible are peculiarly suited to the people that you're witnessing to. Yeah. And there are a lot, there's a lot, you can see like the popcorn disagreement within the class of different, of, of, of these reformed seminarians kind of feeling like they're all shooting their hands up. Nobody talks in this class, okay? Mm-hmm. It's, it's like straight lecture. But like <laughs> during, at this moment, everybody's popping their hands up and saying things like, you know, ooh, I don't know about this whole story thing, asking various questions about how, well, I feel like, you know, yes, we might have a more oral-oriented or more visual-oriented culture, but that's not a good thing. Mm-hmm. We shouldn't just be, like, going along with that. We should be we should be fighting even harder for, like, higher biblical literacy and understanding and all this kind of stuff. And there's, like, real resistance. And, and the professor says, you know, I, I've seen this resistance within the Reformed community, especially to this approach. Mm-hmm. Um, and he said, well, I probably shouldn't say so, you know. And he just stopped talking. And we were like, what? What, and, what was and that? I, and, and so I just like, no, 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 say so. I actually was just like, no, no, please tell. This, this, say it. Say it. It would yeah. be helpful to us to hear this. Why is this so resisted in the Reformed community? And he basically said pride. It's pride. Because the we've worked so hard. And we've read so many books and we have our we're really masters. good at this. We're really, really good at this thing. Interesting. And so when we go out into the world, we're unwilling to set aside this thing we've worked so hard for in order to serve these people who really haven't worked as hard as we have. Mm. Right? And you know, he says this and it's true. It is true. But also at the same time, it it shows something. That is sort of a again one of these sort of subtle uh, implications, like a subtle uh, assumption that's mm-hmm. involved in what he's saying, and that is that telling stories is somehow easier, right? Less or work. requires oh, less work. Mm-hmm. And so I'm sitting here going, but I do understand this: when Jesus went and told parables, there is an open-ended quality to that. There is an open inequality. You don't have the same control over how a person responds to a story that you do over how a person responds to a proposition. Yeah. Right? So you can really narrow in and control the way, and make sure that people are tracking with you if you have mm-hmm. a careful outline and et cetera. Um, but when you're telling a story, the directions that people can go with those and what they're going to pick up from those things is sort of out of your control. And that, that's where pride is, that's because where pride you want is. more control want... over what the person walks away with. Exactly. And so in the Reformed community, but not just in the Reformed community, I'd say in the larger evangelical community, mm-hmm. this unwillingness to, to, to have open-ended exploration and dialogue with people that disagree with them mm-hmm. is sort of at the heart of why there's an obstacle toward the arts. Because they're kind of sitting here going, well, yeah, if you guys do a picture or a song or a whatever. How do you how, know? How, how do you know they're walking away with what you yeah with with what was necessary for them to right? And the answer is we don't. And uh, a and test, that's okay. <laughs> a test that you could do is to see how much dialogue is currently happening with you or your church body 
and people who disagree with you and non-Christians. Right. How much dialogue is being cultivated? Right. Uh, we got to start wrapping up. We're running out of time. I yeah. will say there are two main things. If this means something to you, if, if, if you're grabbed by this idea and you think that it could be true, there are two main things I would encourage you to try to do. First of all, start making space for conversations about this topic. In your wherever you are, in whatever church you are, uh, whatever community you find yourself in, it's essential that we start talking about how important this is, um, and we start doing it soon before we lose more time. And if you want um, us to talk to anybody, if you if you want us <laughs> to join in or help facilitate that yeah. conversation, reach out to us. Um, the second thing is support artists. Now that doesn't mean you have to throw money at them. It doesn't mean you have to coddle <laughs> people who feel like they're artists so they deserve some sort of sp- super special treatment or something like that. It means recognize the value of creative people in your community. It means recognize the value of the things that they make. It means recognize the um, value they could be to your church and to the world. And then perhaps, first of all, encourage them in that, learn from them, and uh, definitely, if it, you know, if you're willing to financially support some sort of art, uh, there, I guarantee you there, there are projects right at your fingertips that you could do a lot to help out on. If you're trouble have, having trouble finding that or you want to see the kind of work that we've done and support the kind of work that we've done, you can go to renewthearts.org, um, look, click on the tag pro- Projects. We support artists that are doing amazing things, um, and you can see the kind of work that we've done there. But again, if you want us to help facilitate that kind of conversation, or if you just want to ask me questions or ask Michael questions about this, shoot us an email. Uh, You can reach out to me at justice, that's J-U-S-T-U-S, at renewthearts.org, and we'd be happy to talk to you about this a little more. We're going to close out with a song um, written by Jesse Murray with the band Brock's Folly, which I was honored to be a part of for a little bit there. This song is called Who Will Sing, and we thought it was appropriate for today's topic. Thank you. Who will sing to the common man in the common tongue? Simple words With truth beyond what they comprehend On the western coast In the viper's den And who will speak The name of Jesus And who will speak The name of Jesus Who will sing to the common man in the common tongue simple words with the truth beyond what they comprehend on the western coast in the viper's den 